Welcome back to the Arbitrary Archive, the show where siblings DJ and Travis attempt to catalog all of human culture just one word at a time, all under the guidance of a sentient and hopefully benevolent artificial intelligence named Jeff. Every week, Jeff gives us a one-word category, and Travis and I must find a piece of media or artwork that fits that category to contribute to the Arbitrary Archive. This week, please put your seat backs and tray tables in their upright and locked positions because uh, Jeff has given us the word airspace. I was so hoping Trav- you'd do something like that. <laughs> what were you able to uh, find to contribute to the Arbitrary Archive in the category of airspace? My contribution this week is going to be 1997's Con Air. And when I say 1997, I need the audience to audibly gasp because this movie feels like yeah, 1997 is about 15 years uh, too late for a movie with this tonality to be released. It feels so powerfully 80s, uh, <laughs> and yet it is not. It is a 1997 film. Stars an ensemble cast, but with uh, Nicolas Cage in the lead role. We also have John Cusack, John Malkovich, Steve Buscemi, Ving Rhames. Uh, the list goes on. There's a Danny Trejo in there. There's a Dave Chappelle hanging out. Wildcast. The premise of Con Air and the reason that it fits the category is that the a group of prisoners are being transported on a plane, and those uh, they're like the baddest of the bad, and they uh, hijack the flight, and it becomes the joke is that you're now flying on Con Air. He says <laughs> the name of the movie in the movie. Uh, Oh, did I already mention John Malkovich? Yeah, he's sort of the lead villain. Yeah, I, I listed John Malkovich. Um, yeah, so that's why it fits the category. Con Air is a movie I had never seen, and so I thought it would be an interesting... Th- it's always interesting to me to go back to these movies that are not considered classics, but are at least culturally remembered. I feel like Con Air is a movie that people make reference to even though it's not it's not considered in the canon and so it's it's always interesting to go back and see like why that is why these movies have the the cultural staying power that they do wait 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 so you're saying this was the first time you've seen yeah. con air wow yeah. like how this is one of those movies that's like uh, omnipresent right like on every sunday afternoon uh, like this movie is is playing on some cable network somewhere <laughs> so maybe it's as simple as that maybe it's it's simple ubiquity on cable networks explode but but that would beg the question why does it continue to be successful on, on these things um con air struck me for a few reasons first the the main character played by nicholas cage this uh one uh, Cameron Poe, his character is, uh, he's just sort of a wrong place, wrong time guy. They even say that in the movie. Um, he was originally arrested for manslaughter because, uh, a bunch of drunk people tried to, um, step to his wife and he like defended her and in the process killed one of them because he was an army ranger previously the judge ruled that um that it shouldn't be considered self-defense and should be considered manslaughter because uh he has the training and he's able to respond with lethal force or something i don't even it was really contrived anyway so he goes to prison. It's his last day. He just happens to be on the same plane as 
uh, these worst of the worst when they hijack the plane. And he, along with uh, John Cusack's character, who's uh, he's a, I don't know, he's like a some sort of U.S. marshal. Okay, he's a marshal on the ground. The the two of them sort of separately, and they end up coming together in the final act of the film. But through the beginning of it, they are acting separately to to both try and gain control back of this plane that's been taken over by the prisoners. So Nick Cage's character is really striking to me, and it made me think about media depictions of the military uh, generally. As I mentioned, he's an army ranger. This movie is a really interesting look at our cultural mythology about, especially in the United States, the the cultural mythology surrounding uh, people in the military. Namely, there's a sequence in which the a bunch of uh, military army folks end up uh, guns and all tanks and all try to, I guess it's more like uh, Humvees, whatever, but vehicles and all try to stop the, the cons from taking off in the plane again. And in this sequence, it's clearly depicted as, Oh, they're, they're just soldier dudes. It doesn't matter if they die. They're completely expendable. They're nameless. They're faceless. Um, They just fall into the, uh, the the background as nameless soldier dudes, and yet the film so the film wants you to think of them as uh, expendable, as just like this expendable resource. But also because Cameron Poe, Nick Cage's character, is an army ranger, he is depicted as this like messianic figure who is, you know, this individual who's trained to the to the uh, the height of of human capacity and just this incredible force for good and just this incredibly uh this individual that can't be distilled down into anything but himself and i think that central contradiction of individuals in the military as being both expendable and yet powerful individuals i think is key to how military action in the united states is justified and you can kind of see it uh, play out in this movie because to be able to do you see do you see what I'm getting to DJ I'm not I'm having trouble getting to that to that last that last step of the idea but do you see generally what I'm what I'm saying yeah and even the half of that that the movie thinks it's getting right like the movie is pretty proud of how it situates Nick Cage in this movie oh, right yeah it's, it's pretty proud of his being like an army ranger and they glorify that but they even get that wrong they don't handle that right because all throughout the movie, like other characters are explaining to Cameron what his motivation is and why, <laughs> like as if it wasn't already obvious for us. Like, I mean, they hit us over the head with this. The opening shot of this movie is like stock footage of like Desert Storm, and I'm like, wait, I thought this was a movie about convicts taking over a, a plane. Yeah. Like, what what does this have to do with anything? Um, and like, yeah, like the first. The bookends of this movie, Trav, oh, they're Ooh. so they're so face palmy, and it's yeah. And so the problem is like, yeah, in these plane movies, we're gonna be talking about a lot about plane movies today. There's always like these contrivances as to why people like continue to do the things they're doing, and like you know why because there's why so much just... structure about how plane travel works, you can kind of get away <laughs> with a lot of that in a weird way. 
And so Con Air wants to have all these great action set pieces, which kind of mandates that the plane land from time to time. Uh-huh. <laughs> and and so it's, then it's it raises questions of like, okay, so why doesn't everybody just get off at this point? Or why doesn't the, the government like take control of the plane back? And it's like, okay, we got these contrivances. He's an army ranger. And so all these characters are like, oh, you're doing this because you're an army ranger. That's why. And it, it's just like, okay, so it's, it's not so much that you even want to glorify the military, which I have reservations even about that. Yep. But you're not even doing that correctly. You, yeah. you, you've turned it into like a contrivance to keep this this shambles of a plot moving forward. It's yeah, it this wow, this movie is is something, that's for sure. It, yeah. So the other reason it's striking to me is it's almost like and I guess this is also the the second reason that the movie struck me is similar to the first and that it also center out centers around Nick Cage's character. It's such a strange choice to make a movie that is such based around an ensemble cast and yet be so enamored with one central main character. So certainly there are a lot of villainous characters and that can work in, in structure that that structure works a lot in movies of having um you know multiple villains and do your ensemble cast that way but that's not even really how conair aims to do it because there are like villains of varying levels of um evilness and then there are you know i also mentioned john cusack's character and then there are other people on the ground who are trying to help out in similar ways and there are just so many characters <laughs> and and yet the the focus on Nick Cage is such that it has the um, thematic arc of a movie that's about a single protagonist, but it has the, the presumably because it sells better, the structure of an ensemble film. Um, and what it ends up being is just there is not a moment of downtime. There are so many sequences where um, like a character, there's an important character moment. The music slows down for a bit. And I mean for a bit because <laughs> you'll like see the, the reaction shot of the character in question. The music slows down and then we immediately cut away to like a dude's head about to be slammed in by a hydraulic press or whatever. And it is, and it's so blistering um, that I couldn't help but kind of be fascinated at the machinations that had to go into making this happen in the, not short, the two-hour runtime of this movie. Like, even though two hours is a lot for this kind of movie, um, they really need to pack it all in to be able to do what they're trying to do, and they don't really pull anything off it's this weird mess and i think weird commercial messes like this are the perfect places to look at the you know the contradictions central to how our culture understands stories and uh like like movies that are kind of broken tell you a lot about the stories we tend to tell um because you can notice how they're broken and you can notice how they accidentally deviate from the norm um and i think that's why it's so uh, that first bit about that i was talking about about the the weird military fetishization um i think that's why that's so strikingly obvious to me watching this movie is because the rest of it is such a structural mess that all of those 
uh, cultural messes sort of come out from beneath it. This is not an original idea, by the way. This is totally out of so much film theory that I'm forgetting the author's names of, but this is just a perfect example of that phenomenon. Um, not a good movie. Probably wouldn't recommend anyone watch it unless they're like me and and are really fascinated by this specific type of train wreck, or should I say plane crash? Um, DJ, do you have any additional thoughts about Con Air? If you do find yourself having to watch this movie for some reason, I, I think there are two two elements of it that are somewhat kind of interesting or at least entertaining. That's all I'm going to give it is that I, I think I sort of disagree with one of your points, Trav. I mm. like the villains in this movie. Um, I think they are, uh, they're, they're all different. Um, and as you pointed out, there's, there's like varying degrees of evilness, which kind of makes the movie somewhat confusing, but, um, to have so many characters and have them all, uh, to be able to like show off individual characteristics of each one. And a lot of times they are overblown, but um, I, I did sort of enjoy that. The villains are definitely the most interesting part of the movie because like on the, the Nick cage, like spectrum of crazy intensity, this is like a fairly middle of the road performance. Like he, he's not doing anything wild or out of the ordinary here. So I do it, like the part where he gets shot in the arm and doesn't even give so much as a flinch, but I guess <laughs> oh, that's yeah. more of the script than it is Nick cage's performance yeah that's right a lot of a lot of the nick cage stuff is from the script like there's a lot of just one-liners which goes back to your other point of like this feels like an 80s movie (laughs) yeah so to respond to your point about the villains i i have trouble really enjoying so there's some interesting things right like there's uh like steve buscemi's character is this unassuming looking guy who's portrayed as the most unquestionably inconceivably evil person. It's such a tired irony. It's it's been done so many times. Right, right. And we never actually see him do anything. And he's just the, you know, he's the weird one. You can't, you don't know what he's going to do. You know, he's unassuming, but he could kill you all with a snap of his fingers. And that goes absolutely nowhere. Like this is like cheeky thing at the end with him. But you take him out of this movie and all you lose is a little bit of creepiness. Uh, like, he has no impact on the plot whatsoever. Um, <laughs> am I wrong? Like, unless I miss something. No, he's he's just, like, so much of this movie is just shots of new convicts being added to the plane in dramatic ways. Like, yeah. slow yeah. zooms while the music crescendos. And, like, it, th- yeah, that is completely artless. But that was kind of the second thing that I want to mention is just, like, it is just sheer cheese. And, like, oh, and sometimes yeah. it's a little bit fun. Like, like uh, Leonard Skinner's Sweet Home Alabama is used in no less than two music cues in, the, in this <laughs> movie. And, it is it is something to behold that's for I, sure so like pure entertainment value i definitely do not recommend this movie but like i said if you if you're somehow forced to watch it i think you could maybe do worse i don't know i also i have nothing really of value to say about it but i think but i i do find it also really fascinating there's a character who it's not on screen that much, so it's difficult to take to say exactly what's trying to be portrayed. But they're either a trans woman or a like a, a drag, like a gay dude who's a drag queen. 
um, who's like one of the sort of one of the side villains who only appears on screen a few times. And they're a villain, certainly. And they they're like a drug dealer, I guess. Um, But it's it's a weirdly it's so strange to see a movie from this era have a character like that and not have homophobic or transphobic jokes at that person's expense. I didn't, there, there's even one joke where the punchline is like to respect the person's identity, whether they be a <laughs> trans woman or, or like a, just a gay crossdresser. I'm not sure, but like Nicholas Cage is about to, to punch the character and then is like, Oh, well I can't hit a lady and then slaps them instead. And it's like, it's the weirdest like way to be like trans women are women, but it's like kind of the message of that character. And I yeah, don't, I, I, I didn't, I had, I had no idea what to think about this part of the movie because it's like, wait, is, is like con air woke somehow? Like <laughs> it, it, it's weird because like Cyrus uh, played by Malkovich is like super respectful of that character. Like he, yeah. gives, he he gives her these like assignments, and he's just like, yeah. There's never any jokes or anything. He like tre- treats her as like fully yeah. capable and a part of the team. And it's like, wow, I, this is not <laughs> what I what I expected. Like, I guess yeah. I guess we're gonna give it some props for that, but it's just really confusing. Like, I, yeah, there, I don't know if it knows what it's doing. I feel like there's a full video essay that could be made about that character and I, I like like I said I don't know what the conclusion of that idea or that that theoretical video essay is but I thought it would be a, I would be remiss if I didn't point out that really strange and kind of as you say woke facet about Con Air um, anyway I think we've talked about this movie neither of us recommend enough uh, DJ, what is your contribution this week under the category of, was it airspace? Airspace, yep. So I'm going to contribute the 2005 Wes Craman, <laughs> wow, <laughs> the 2005 Wes Craven thriller film called Red Eye, starring Rachel Before McAdams. Before we start, does, uh, does the movie leave you Wes Craven for more? <laughs> <laughs> No, we just put the recommendation right oh, at the beginning. Oh man, what what an episode! Uh, yeah, it uh, it does not. Um, I really struggled with this category, Trav, like to the point where I I was like googling these like clickbait lists of like top plane movies or whatever, and and I I watched like a handful of them. Like I didn't tell you about this beforehand, but I was just like I watched so many garbage plane movies trying to Ugh. find one to talk about. Oh no. And, and this was like the best that I could come up with because yeah. plane movies, they're just garbage. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's like you you have this plot that is not interesting at all, but wait, because there's a plane there. There's a plane <laughs> and uh and so this this film is no exception. So uh, what we have going on here... You know is... what we could have done, DJ? What you know what done? opportunity we missed? We could have doubled up on the Nick Cage, and we could have done Left Behind. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> we anyway, could have continue. done that. Yeah. Um, so Rachel McAdams plays this character, Lisa, who is a uh, manager at a hotel um, in Miami. And the premise of the movie is that she, as a hotel manager, somehow has sufficient clout to 
uh, override a security detail for the director of Homeland Security of the United States and switch his room. So the director of Homeland Security is going to be staying in Rachel McAdams' hotel. Um, and so she has the somehow has the authority to switch his room at the last minute. And so to convince her to do that, Killian Murphy, who is like this assassin, it's never really clear who he's working for, but he's like an assassin for hire. He gets on the same flight with Rachel McAdams and in that claustrophobic environment threatens her through various mechanisms to try to convince her to switch the director of Homeland Security's room so that he could be more easily assassinated. So that's the premise of the movie. And like, even in my describing it, our listeners are probably scratching their heads as to just the level of preposterousness on display here. Like, I, I, like, yeah, I guess you have to suspend your disbelief that somehow the manager of a hotel can override security detail of, uh-huh. uh, of the director of Homeland Security. So that's the basis you're starting out on. And then I, I think the movie, it, the movie does some interesting things at the beginning and end. Like same, like we mentioned the bookends for Con mm. Air. There's these bookends for Red Eye that are this weird commentary on being respectful to folks who are in customer service industry, right? There's like yep. over and over again, there are these little side stories about customers being abusive to customer service reps. And I was like, you know, that's kind of interesting. I didn't really expect this movie to be about that. It's mostly not. Right. Um, yeah. Once once Killian Murphy and Rachel McAdams get onto the plane, that idea is kind of abandoned, and it just you could becomes... argue that it kind of continues in the more ge- like general theme of in the sort of like funny games, the movie funny games, sort of funny games way of like when uh, like social expectations are a hindrance, and when they help you out but like it's a bit of a stretch to to link those two ideas together yeah yeah and i think the movie struggles to make that connection right because it rachel mcadams character lisa is portrayed as like very capable like very good at Mm -hmm. managing situations and the the funny games critique right and you know in the movie funny games is that movie is in a lot of ways a criticism of the parents of that movie because they go so far in trying to be hospitable to these strangers they let in their house. And so Rachel McAdams' character doesn't do that. Like as soon as she gets right. a, a whiff of Killian Murphy being a bad guy, she's she's already kind of strategizing ways out of that. So it's like their their own message they're trying to get to land doesn't work because of the way that they've structured their characters. Um, and I think where this movie really falls down is – in the interactions between our two leads. Um, So they're Mm. kind of, Wes Craven's kind of going for like a Hitchcock thing here, which is like kind of high suspense with just two people talking to each other, right? So that's another thing of plane movies, right? We're stuck in this claustrophobic environment. So we know that for the majority of the runtime, we're just going to have these two characters talking to each other. I knew things were going to be a problem when at the beginning of the movie, we have a scene of dialogue between Rachel McAdams and Killian Murphy in a, in the airport bar. And like before she knows anything about his threat at the point where he's just a kind stranger to her. That's right. And the dialogue is so stilted and the scene is edited in such a bizarre way. I was like, alarm bells were going off. I'm like, oh my gosh, this whole movie is just these two people talking to each other and I can't stand like two minutes of it. Um, Because the editing is this weird choice of where after... Well, it's not a weird choice. It happens in movies a lot, but it's this very functional after every line is delivered, cut over to the other person for them to deliver a line and then cut back to the other person's face. And you don't get any like 
wider shots for them both to exchange lines back and forth and it it or really to even re- like show the physicality of the two of them together right like i think that's the body language the sh- the wide shot the establishing the body language of the people involved is really key to those scenes especially in a movie like this where it goes from the two of them like kind of hitting it off to be to once he reveals that <laughs> you know what like what his plan is to the to her being like his victim essentially like showing that the change in body language uh, in a clear way would have been uh, effective and you don't really get that establishment of that in those first scenes that's exactly right it's it's something it really reveals the artifice of filmmaking mm-hmm. when it's like oh, okay clearly they they were having some kind of trouble with the verbal exchange of dialogue going on here. So, okay, film one line and cut, film one line and cut, film one line and cut. And it's just like, oh my gosh, this is, this is fatiguing my eyes right now. And so that's the entire movie. Like that doesn't change once they get on the plane. It's filmed in the exact same way. And then we've got the other problems of plane movies, right? Which is just like, it is Chekhov's everything, right? So yeah. it's just like every plane movie like introduces you to this. Oh, here's this cast of characters that's going to be on the plane and you're going to see that person again. Like they're, that's going to do something. And it's like, and, and then all the items that end up on the plane. It's like, Oh, that kid has a weird looking pen. I wonder what that's going to be used for. It, it's, it's just. It's so exhausting just waiting for these things to pay off. And then because it is a thriller, you know, there's going to be like a, a third act kind of face off between these characters. And it's just like, here we go. And I'm just like, I, I am so, I'm so done with this at this point. Yeah. And, and maybe it's not the fault of Red Eye. Maybe it's, it was my quest to try to find a watchable plane movie. I was just so done with the genre overall that I can't I, recommend this one <laughs> at all. So yeah, what, what are your thoughts on it? I found it a Trav? little more fun than you if only because i watched it immediately after con air (laughs) um and by comparison it is a much better film but yeah i'm not gonna stray that far from you um if only because the whole thing hinges on the on the antagonistic relationship between these two characters and I don't know. Like the movie spends a lot of time establishing backstories that complicate this. Like it's revealed, I don't know, halfway through that um, Rachel McAdams' character had a previous run, a previous and kind like kind of similar run in, and like that's supposed to add color to it. And yet, you don't really end up feeling much about the two of them, and it's kind of a shame because they're you're gonna be sitting next to them on the plane for the whole ride. So, um, but like, I, I do think, um, that there is something to be said for the intensity that's inherent to the premise of, uh, like, like there's the, it's claustrophobic, right? You're in an airplane the whole time. So the urgency of the situation is made that much more uncomfortable. Um, and then, um, it, you're right that it is that it does have like all of the plain movie contrivances, um, but I think a few of them when they come up, like her her attempt to scrawl a note on the 
on the like the bathroom mirror. Like I like that experience of like, okay, she's in an airplane. She only has this many resources because she's in an airplane. What can she do with what she has? And like smear a message with soap on the mirror. Yeah, like you sort of end up rooting for the character just by nature of we know how planes go. Like we know what's in them. And so we're kind of on the same page as her as she's doing this. But yeah, it's it's not enough to carry the movie when the central uh, dynamic between the two leads doesn't have a lot. Yeah, you're right. I think the one bright spot of this movie is that the character of Lisa is is written in an intelligent way. Like she makes yep. smart choices. She does the best she can in this situation. I think that's the one bright spot. But but overall, this this one is a dud. If nothing else, like you get to watch Brian Cox answer the phone like at least five times in this movie. Yeah. Like, I I can't even. Like, what was the what, what kind of direction was Wes Craven giving Brian Cox in those scenes? It's like okay, I you're... like to imagine that not until the fine until the you know, like third act was filmed that they were given no indication of what the premise of the movie was. Like both the dad character that you just mentioned and the, like the Lisa, as you mentioned, is a hotel manager. And so there's this other character who's like the, her stand in while she's gone. And I like to think that, that neither of those two characters were given like an explanation of like, it's an airplane movie with, with this assassination angle. And they're just like, like she's, she at the hotel is just like trying her dang best to keep all of these guests in order. And like probably (laughs) thinks it's a comedy. Oh, that would be amazing. That would be amazing. So yeah, this was a, uh, this was a tough category, plane movies. Let's put these to bed. Uh, Trav, let's find our, our next assignment. All right. Biter, biter, biter. DJ, our one-word category from the Artificial Intelligence Jeff for next week's episode is Biter, B-I-T-E-R. Wow. Okay, that that's uh, that's an interesting one. It is a word. Um, you can find us on Twitter at twitter.com slash arbitraryshow. You can email us at arbitraryarchive at gmail.com. Please rate and review the show on iTunes. The fifth star is our favorite. Our theme music is by Alistair Forsyth of the podcast Bite Size Lemons. And as always, if in creating this archive we inadvertently cause the very apocalypse we are trying to prevent, we sincerely apologize. Sorry. <laughs>